0: Whether you are here in person or with us online, I want you to know that we love you and we appreciate you, especially for making it today when your clocks have cruelly sprung forward an entire hour. Welcome to spring, everybody. If you're a guest with us today, know that you are honored and welcome here. We look forward to getting to know you uh, and hopefully you, us as well. And what better way to do that than through community and worship and opening this word together today. I'm personally excited. And honored to be here with you, sharing this morning for the first time. And this morning, we get to continue leaning into the book of Ecclesiastes, a challenging book, an often misunderstood book, a book that is about examining all the things in this life under the sun that leave us grasping for the wind, things that leave us empty and feeling hopeless and grinded down. We spent last week, if you remember, just wrestling with and reconciling the sobering and challenging reality that everything under the sun is what the Hebrew preacher, the philosopher, the Kohelith calls Hevel, that Hebrew word meaning meaningless, vanity, smoke, vapor, futility. And Wes last week did an amazing job illustrating and walking us through how all the things that run our lives, all the things that stress us out, all of the things that grind us down are ultimately meaningless under the sun. If you haven't seen last week's message, you need to go and do that, because I believe it will give you great perspective, not just on this season that we have been coming through in this COVID time, but in every season of life. We continue this morning. And I love Ecclesiastes, and that might seem strange if you were listening to what I just said before. You might think, why would I read this book and depress myself? Why would you enjoy This sort of thought exercise, why is this book even in the Bible, you might ask at some points? Wes wisely said last week that a case could be made that it should be the first book that brings someone into Scripture. Because Ecclesiastes forces us to think, and it forces us to be honest with ourselves about the nature of this world and the many things that we distract ourselves with of the futility that we experience here that is everything. This morning we have a challenging word. And I want to be upfront with you. I want to be honest with you. This message should challenge you, and it has to be, because the wisdom of disillusionment that we talked about last week doesn't let us off the hook. In our text today, we're told that wisdom is Hevel, and that it, like everything, is striving after the wind. And where we have to go this morning, church... Is going to seem self-defeating. It's going to seem hopeless. It's going to seem contrary to almost everything that you've ever thought and believed and that has been poured into you about how to be successful in this life and what really matters. But I want to let you know there's an anchor. And I want you to keep an eye out for that anchor in this text. That anchor will point us where we truly need to go this morning. This morning we have a word for the wise, if you will. Last week we introduced the wisdom of disillusionment. And this week, we have to build on it by recognizing the need for the disillusionment of wisdom. My mother is here this morning. She she came down to visit for the first time since we've been in Texas. It's an honor to have her here. But as always happens now, when I get to spend time with my mother, she has incredible stories about Marcus when he was just a small, rambunctious, mischievous, ornery Afro puff in a cloud of smoke and she was talking about a story from when I was really small sitting at the table which was an ordeal probably every single night because vegetables were involved okay now back in that day I know eons ago the early 1990s if you didn't finish your vegetables you didn't get up from the table and Like every child, there's some weird kids around now. I love you guys. But you kids who like broccoli before like the age of 19, that's crazy. I love you. Your life is going to be a lot easier. But I did not. I hated broccoli. But there was broccoli on the plate that day. And mom said, you don't even get to go to bed until you finish it. So we had a conundrum. And I sat there. And she left the room. And then I hatched a plot in all of my wisdom that I was going to shovel the broccoli into my mouth. But no matter what, I was not going to eat that wretched vegetable. I was not going to swallow it. And so my plan was sprung and the broccoli was stuffed. And it was such a stubborn endeavor that it made mom wait so long for me to finish it that by the time she saw the plate was empty, she didn't think to stop and check to see if I had done something different with the broccoli. She just sent me to bed. Hey, go brush your teeth, take care of yourself, and then I'll see you in the morning. And so we go on throughout the evening. Everything is normal. My mom tells of what happens the next morning when she walks in. And she sees that little boy, mouth ajar. Anybody else a mouth breather when they sleep? Yeah, it's not cute. And inside of that cavernous little mouth was all of the broccoli (laughs) from the night before. First of all, for those of you who are getting to know me for the first time this morning, that's how stubborn I am. Second of all, this is a picture to the wisdom of children compared to the wisdom of your parents. Because the thing that kids don't like about broccoli is that it tastes awful. It's really not something that when you look at it, you say, Mm, I want some broccoli. It's not the comfort food that you go to when you've had a long day at work. No one's thinking, man, I need some broccoli to take the edge off of this day. It just doesn't taste that good. And the taste is the thing that is bad about broccoli. So the wisdom of a child to say, I'm going to hold the nasty tasting thing in my mouth where I have to taste it for nine hours instead of just swallowing it and being done in 30 seconds, that is futility. In order for us to understand what Ecclesiastes wants us to know this morning, in order to be open for this message, I think we need to realize that our wisdom, the very best that we have to offer compared to God's wisdom, is like my five-year-old wisdom compared to parents' wisdom. And that the very best that we have to offer in figuring this thing out and pretending that we've got everything together In the eyes of God's wisdom is like a mouthful of soggy broccoli. It just doesn't hold up very well. And the truth is, it can become a choking hazard and potentially fatal if you don't deal with it. So here we are in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 today, beginning in verse 12. And I just want to say, get wisdom. We've read Proverbs, right? This seems to run contrary to everything that we've done in Bible study. The Kohelas says, I, the preacher, have been king over all Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and search out wisdom by all that is done under heaven. It's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. Church, this morning, wait, isn't wisdom valuable? Isn't it more valuable than rubies? How can it be folly? Didn't it take the wisdom of disillusionment to unpack the rest of chapter one in this book? Isn't the entire book of Proverbs dedicated to teaching us how to live with and apply wisdom? Wasn't it wisdom that made Solomon legendary in the first place? Isn't it Jesus who grew in wisdom and stature before man and God? Isn't it wisdom that separates the way that we see life and carry ourselves? from everybody else in this world as disciples of Jesus? Isn't it scripture itself that told us to pursue wisdom, that it's more valuable than silver and gold? Isn't it wisdom in Jesus' parables telling us to build our house on the rock like the wise man and not the foolish man who built his house on the sand? Again and again and again, the scriptures tell us to apply and pursue and value wisdom. So what is it with this teacher, this preacher, this philosopher, this Hebrew Koheleth telling us, hey listen, I applied my heart to wisdom and it's an unhappy business that has been given to men under the sun. And just like everything else, toils and work and pleasures, it is vanity and grasping for the wind. Listen, I know I get it. Wisdom does help us in many situations. Men we have learned or need to learn that knowledge is not enough, I know and have many times thought I had the perfect, quick, efficient plan to fix exactly and quickly the problem that your wife is so distraught over, but only wisdom can tell you she doesn't really want you to fix it because God gave us to her as a companion, not a coach. And ladies... I know he hasn't spoken for the last week and he hasn't eaten as much as normal and you probably think he's upset with you about something, but the truth is only wisdom can reveal that that's a huge contract for Dak and he's really worried about your ability to invest in the offensive line and defensive secondary for the next four years. It's a big problem. Wisdom is important. Wisdom is probably not offering marriage and relationship advice to an audience in the first five minutes you get to know them. Point taken. I need some wisdom. If we're ready to draw the line about anything, church, and we have to be painfully honest with ourselves, it's wisdom. Because we, as people, put a tremendous amount of weight on what we know. Don't believe me? Browse Facebook today. Lots of relationships are destroyed over what we believe we know and what we believe other people don't know. And our ability to wisely apply it and their inability to wisely apply it. Listen, the preacher tells us in verse 15, what is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. He continues and says, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me and my heart has had a great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to no wisdom and to no madness and folly, and I perceive that this also is but a striving after the wind for, and much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases in knowledge increases in sorrow. What is wrong with wisdom? Here is a hunch that I have. As you sit here and you try to reconcile the fact that everything that you build your identity and your self-esteem on what you know and how you have learned and your experience that has led to life and how you want other people to live life, listen, We can admit that living for work is a fruitless endeavor. We can be made to think about that and see it. We can admit that living for pleasure is a fruitless endeavor, vanity and striving after the wind, or accomplishment is vanity and folly, of course, but wisdom, Wisdom is deceptively dangerous to us, especially as Christians. Wisdom is deceptive and dangerous because we have a tendency to believe that it is the thing that we can add to other meaningless things to make them meaningful. We like to smuggle meaning into all the other things that are vain and striving after the wind by applying our wisdom to them. We believe that if we practice wisdom in our relationships, they will be better, and therefore, our relationships that we have vainly centered our world and identities on now, somehow escape the transitory nature of this life until we lose one, and then we are absolutely crushed. We believe that if we apply wisdom to our work, we will have success, yes, but we mistakenly misplace our hope and trust in that mentality because those other people who work themselves to the bone, that is one thing. But I work in my wisdom to leave a legacy to those who come after me. Totally different. My obsession is not the same as their obsession. We're seduced into believing that by placing our entire identity and hope in the accumulation of our possessions, that it's not meaningless because we're doing so in order to pass them on to those who come after. I know this is a difficult saying, I know this is tough, and it's written this way, and the Ecclesiastes writer has put it this way on purpose. God has left it in Scripture on purpose because we would never want to confront this truth in the mirror. So easily we convince ourselves that with wisdom applied, our pursuit of pleasure is superior to the one who lives for pleasure alone. We believe that our wisdom and our measured approach to the pleasures of this world separate us. But in actuality, our lives are still ordered around seeing pleasure in a way that validates us and gives us a meaningful life and makes us feel valuable. And in the end, it is really easy that all we have done is tried to smuggle in our need for meaning and our desire to justify our habit of pouring our entire lives into anything and everything that is under the sun. And if we're not careful, we can use wisdom to rationalize it and do it to ourselves. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 says we can't. It's fruitless. Wisdom is dangerous because our perception of it can allow us to pretend that somehow by our cunning, we have escaped the cycle of running in circles that the preacher has already forced us to recognize. Adding wisdom to meaningless things does not make them meaningful, church. Walking with God in his wisdom makes things meaningful. I have to say that one more time. Adding wisdom, even godly wisdom, to meaningless things does not make them meaningful. Walking with God in his wisdom makes things meaningful. But the preacher is not finished yet. He applies his heart to pursue other things, and he starts talking about how in all of this, he kept his wisdom with him, even as he pursued pleasure and work and success. He keeps working this over in his mind. How can wisdom actually be self-defeating? And he comes back to this topic actually in chapter 2. And in chapter 2 in verse 12, he says, again, I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. He says, for what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. And then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. And then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. So why have I been very wise? And I said in my heart, this also is vanity. For to the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten how the wise dies just like the fool. Hold on to this final verse that he writes here. He says, so I hated life because what has been done under the sun was grievous to me and vanity and striving after the wind. The preacher is honest He says, yes, in the short term, as I worked through this and experienced this, wisdom does seem to win out over folly, but it's a shallow victory, it's a meaningless win, it's a futile exercise because in the end, the result is still the same. Even the wise die just as the fool, nothing that we do better, know better, or are wiser at ultimately lands us at a different result. What good is it, what good is wisdom when years from now nobody will even remember? It won't even matter. I don't know a whole lot about my great-grandparents. Those are my own great-grandparents. Do you know much about yours? Maybe you do. But just think the greatest and wisest in history under the sun will eventually be totally forgotten and at the best, a dusty paleontologist will brush off a stela and he will infer of their possible existence and these were the greatest to ever walk the earth. What does it profit the wise when their end result is the same as the fool? to have their quotes stolen and plagiarized on the internet all day long and not actually getting credit for the things that they said that were so wise and thoughtful. Even the best laid plans and the greatest intentions, even things like the Ivy League schools, Harvard and Yale and Princeton, that were founded by men who loved and revered and respected God, in order to train ministers to send the Gospel out, now stand as bastions of secularism a couple generations later the greatest laid plans, the best intentions, the most godly institutions. Meaningless. Wisdom gone in a vapor and a smoke. Someday nobody will remember you will hear. Someday nobody will remember how wise you were, no matter how much knowledge you accumulate, no matter how much folly and madness you can recognize and point out in everybody else. What good is it to pursue social solutions of our time? If, like the preacher says, the crooked cannot be made straight, and corruption always ends up abusing the innocent in this world, like a cruel cycle, grinding us down. Because the preacher in Ecclesiastes understands this. He's not only vexed, he's filled with discontent. And I can see it in some of your faces right now. This is a really depressing sermon. Not a good first out for you, man. You should have asked to do something different. But if you're feeling that right now, I want you to know that you're feeling exactly like the preacher in Ecclesiastes felt. He's taken you exactly where you need to go because he says in verse 17, when I considered all of this and understood and grew in wisdom and knowledge, not only was I vexed, not only was I anxious, not only was I discontent, I hated life. I hated the futility of life. I hated the futility and injustice of life. I hated that no matter how much smarter I was than everyone else, in the end it didn't matter because people are going to be people and the sun is going to keep coming up and the sands are going to keep washing over time and generations from now nobody is going to remember that amazing point I made on that Facebook diatribe and what has it all been for? I hated life. Nothing will make someone hate life more than a chilling realization that it doesn't actually matter anyway. And that's where we pick up the anchor that I mentioned before. Church, you made it, okay? He hasn't left us without hope. He hasn't left us without an arrow, an anchor to pivot on to turn us towards the truth. Here's a word for the wise. Do you find yourself insanely vexed about the way things are going in this world today? Are you riddled with anxiety because it doesn't make sense? Because you have grown in wisdom and knowledge. Have you grown in vexation and anxiety and toil as well? Have you pursued logic and reason and wisdom and still found that nothing you have poured yourself into thus far holds up to the insane weight of eternity that you know is actually inside of you? Then I have a strange suggestion for you. I think God is actually giving you a gift. I think if you feel that, as bad as it feels right now, it is a gift from God. Let me explain how. I love this book of Ecclesiastes, this ancient wisdom literature. It's so relevant and contemporary. It was written so many years ago, yet its thesis, that there is nothing new under the sun, is proved by the fact that the preacher is able to, with laser accuracy, predict the scientific post-Enlightenment Western world that we live in right now. It's absolutely on point. Thousands of years ahead of schedule because if we're really honest and we sit and think about the world that we live in now, we live in a world that has set its heart on what? Finding meaning through the pursuing of wisdom and knowledge. We can find meaning under the sun through things under the sun if we understand them enough, if we can figure out how things work, if we apply ourselves to knowledge and wisdom and and education if we can figure out how this all happened. What the Ecclesiastes writer is doing is he's defined the entire scientific, he's defined the entire scientific complex, the entire enterprise, more specifically, the quest to discover and define existence from everything under the sun. He's right on the money thousands of years ahead of schedule. And it has proved to be an exercise in futility, literally. Because any committed secular academic and scientist will tell you that our beginning on this planet was without purpose and cause and reason. It was meaningless and that our end eventually the sun will go out and the universe will burn up and the universe will never remember we were here. It began in futility and it's going to end in futility. And that it's up to us to decide what our meaning and purpose is for ourselves, but it's absolutely dishonest. Because if your beginning is meaningless and your end is meaningless, you have to have the guts to admit that everything in between is meaningless too. That's all the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying. But nobody actually lives like that, do they? Nobody, not even the most committed and staunch secular atheist, lives like nothing matters. We can't bring ourselves to do it because God has placed eternity in the soul of every single man. We know at our core it doesn't add up and we can't deal with it. And so we drive ourselves mad. Just like the preacher in Ecclesiastes, we grow jaded and we grow cynical. Are you jaded and cynical about the way the world is right now? As you have gotten older and wiser and understood more and more about the way the world works, has it made you colder and harder to reach and more distant and more expectant of negative? Has it destroyed your optimism and your hope? Has it stymied your personal growth and your walk with the Lord? Have you asked yourself, why does it even matter? Why do I even care? What's the point anyway? Nothing is going to change. The more things change, the more they stay the same. There's only way, or one way I should say, not to come to this cruel but helpful realization. There's only one way not to get what Wes called last week the wisdom of disillusionment, and that is to bury your head in the sand and ignore everything that's going on around you. And the most effective way to not have to confront this and deal with it is to keep yourself so busy that you never actually stop and think about life. But if you stop and think this through, like we have for a few minutes this morning, I want you to know that God is giving you an incredible gift. Because he continues in chapter two, verse 24, he says, there's nothing better for a man that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. And apart from him, who can eat or have any enjoyment? For the one who pleases him, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he's given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also, is vanity and striving for the wind. Did you notice something peculiar in that section of verses? The author threw it in there real quick. He was real slick about it. The phrase under the sun is mentioned some 30 times in this book, and he's only used that so far. And all of a sudden here in chapter 2 in verses 24 through 28, he says something strange. He says, this too is from the hand of God. He's looking at it from a different angle. You see, with God in the picture, the same things that are vanities, the same things that are vexations, the same things that cause us inner turmoil, that are futile, become gifts from God. The same knowledge and wisdom that with it came so much vexation and sorrow became a gift from the hand of God. But how? Here's the anchor point that I was talking about. Did you know that in Romans chapter 8, the scripture says that God has made it this way for a reason? And I think we miss it because it's a really exciting passage. And there's a lot to unpack there. You could spend a lifetime in the book of Romans. You could probably spend a decade in Romans chapter 8 and not get to the bottom of it. But in Romans chapter 8 it says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. And we usually hang out there. That encourages us, but we must press forward. For the creation waits with eager longing, eager longing, For the revealing of the sons of God. And here's the point. For the creation was subjected to futility, vanity, meaninglessness. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage and corruption to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's you. That's us. You see, this is the revelation of that scriptural principle that West brought to life last week. This is God intentionally subjecting everything under the sun to futility so that we who live here and observe it are forced to confront the futility of building our lives on or around any of it. God knows there's no other way out. We either have to bare our hands in the sand and pretend that there's meaning when there's not, or we have to look up and submit our wisdom, our work, our passions, our possessions, our pleasure, our lives, and our wisdom to the one who has created order out of chaos and meaningfulness out of futility. The futility of our wisdom under the sun is a gift given by God to save us from being distracted into a meaningless life. The futility of our wisdom under the sun is a gift given by God to keep you from being distracted into a meaningless life. Are you getting the message? As we close this morning, I just want to point out that in the beginning, of the book of John. We read that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we have done well to talk about the implications of our understanding of this Word and Jesus being the Word and being God and being with God and all things being made through Him and all the places that touches. But I want to draw out for us this morning that that Word behind the Word is the Greek word logos. And that word logos meant more than simply a word or the word to the Greeks. They were obsessed with the logos because for the Greeks, that word also meant the meaning behind the universe. It meant the reason and logic and purpose behind everything. They were obsessed with finding it. They, too, pursued wisdom in order to try and learn how to best live in harmony with the universe and find meaning. And by the time this New Testament was written, like us today, they had grown hopeless and filled with vexation. And along comes John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and he pins this radical and explosive idea that Jesus Christ is the Logos. He is the Word. He is the meaning. He is the purpose. He is the reason. He is the why behind all of creation. And that creation has been subjected to futility in order to save us from being distracted by meaningless things away from the one in whom is all meaning. If that is the case, if Jesus did come, if he is the Logos, if he died, if he indeed resurrected, then it really does change everything because now everything matters. Now there is freedom from futility. It means that the Christian is not subject to this perpetual meaninglessness and futility. Last week we said that whatever God does endures forever. One of the most vexing aspects of growing in wisdom under the sun the preacher taught us was the reality that all of it comes to nothingness when we die. It's all blasted away by time and the constant grind. No one remembers, no one cares, everything is is ruined. So yes, wisdom along with all of our other idols, becomes nothingness, but whatever God makes, remains. And so when you are a new creation in Christ, when you have been remade, you break the cycle, and you become, like Christ, one who endures forever. And that means if you endure forever, if you are remade If you last forever, that means that everything you do actually does matter, it's not futile because every conversation that you have, especially the ones that bring someone else the good news of the gospel, you'll be sitting around the throne someday, you'll be in heaven someday saying, hey, you remember we had that conversation? That was great, huh? Every job that you do that you steward as a gift from God that doesn't bring you vexation and anger and toil and hopelessness but you realize it is a gift actually matters. Every relationship that you pour into actually matters. The godly wisdom that you gain and apply. Every single thing that God does in this world through you in Christ counts and matters forever. And yes, it echoes in eternity. Revelation chapter 12 verse 12 says, here's a call for endurance for the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors for what? Their deeds do follow them. Everything matters. Listen to me, family. Adding wisdom to meaningless things does not give them meaning. Wisdom under the sun and apart from God leads to nothing but vexation and hopelessness. And if you're a person who, when you look at the world, realize more and more that the more you know, and the more you understand about how things really work here, if you find yourself with crippling anxiety and unshakable hopelessness and a pit of anger and discontent about it, then you have to realize that you're bumping up against a gift that God is trying to give you. He's calling you if you've ever felt the futility. If you never felt the futility, you never do the hard work to think this through. If you have that hopeless feeling, then somewhere along the way you have put something in a place of God. You have put your hope and trust in something that cannot bear the weight of the eternity that you are called to and that is inside of you. You've been grasping at the wind and Christians are not immune, family. We're not immune. We all desire a legacy, a name and a purpose, a meaning, a reason to be. We need to matter. And you need to escape the futility of all wisdom under the sun and be set free to walk clothed in the glory and dignity and power of the sun. You may be here as a follower of Jesus and realize that your loves have been disordered, your hopes have been disordered, and that you've been continually vexed and crippled by anxiety because you put too much stock in figuring this thing out. Too much meaning and wisdom. We love you, and we're here for you. We all need these smelling salts that we get from this text. We all need the wisdom of disillusionment, and we all need the disillusionment of wisdom. And if you're here this morning and you're tired of living an empty and ultimately meaningless life under the sun, I need you to know that during this song, you can meet with one of our shepherds in the back and you can put on Christ and put off futility. You can begin a life of purpose and meaning and power in the sun. Under the sun, it's meaningless. In the sun, everything matters. Please come as we stand and sing.